I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about SCOTUS Bingo, SCOTUS Tunes, and we'll chat with Sheldon Gilbert from the Institute for Justice. So not much is happening at the Supreme Court this week. The justices wrapped up this term's oral arguments last week, and now we have to wait for them to release all of the remaining opinions. And I did a quick quick count, and it looks like there are 39 opinions to go, including two from October, Epic Systems, which is an arbitration case, and Gill, the big partisan gerrymandering case. Traditionally, the justices have roughly the same number of opinions, and they— they're usually pretty evenly distributed from each sitting. So it gets interesting near the end of the term when more opinions come down, and you can start to guess which justice might be the author of any of the remaining opinions. It's a little bit like playing SCOTUS bingo. Yeah, exactly. We should we should do that. Um, <laughs> so, for example, since there are only two opinions from October, and each of the justices already wrote an opinion from that sitting, except Gorsuch in the, ch- in the chief. So my guess is that the chief is going to write Gill and that Gorsuch has the arbitration case. Um, this is just a guess, but I have a hard time believing that Gorsuch is going to get assigned one of the biggest cases of the term just yet. I think they're still trying to, you know, uh, ease him in. Ease him in. Yeah. And SCOTUS Law keeps great stats about this. Um, and if you're interested, you can check it out on their stats page. There's a new way to get caught up on SCOTUS oral arguments. Tiffany, have you have you heard about this yet? No, I haven't. Tell me. So there's a YouTube channel called SCOTUS Tunes, and it has cartoon videos of every oral argument. What? Yeah, it just started this term, and I I watched a little bit of some of them this morning, and I love it. So it's the audio from the court, and then this this guy has drawn cartoons of all of the advocates and all of the justices, and he uses some sort of computer program, I think, so that the little mouths move <laughs> with with the audio. Uh, anyway, it's really interesting. So if you can't get into the court for an argument, or if you just really can't wait until next fall when they're back for arguments, check out SCOTUS Tunes, and you'll almost feel like you're in the courtroom. That's great. <laughs> so in other SCOTUS news, uh, Solicitor General Noel Francisco sent a letter to the court this week explaining that he misspoke at the travel ban oral argument when he said that on t- September 25th, President Trump publicly stated that the executive order uh, that's the subject of that lawsuit was not a ban on Muslims. So at the argument, Francisco said that Trump made this statement on September 25th, 2017, when in fact it was January 25th, 2017, which is what their their brief said. Um, before the government, and this was before the the president had signed the first ex- executive order restricting travel. So I don't think this really changes anything about the government's argument, but kudos to the Solicitor General for admitting his mistake. <laughs> Justice Sonia Sotomayor injured her left shoulder last month, and she had a replacement surgery this week. And the court's public information officer said that the surgery went well and the justice will return home after a couple nights in the hospital. So we wish wish Justice Sotomayor a speedy recovery. So next up, we're going to talk with Sheldon Gilbert. We're pleased to have Sheldon Gilbert from the Institute for Justice with us today. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thanks for having me. So your organization filed a cert petition in a case challenging Missouri's cosmetology licensing scheme which requires more than 1,000 hours of training. The petition is pretty bold. You're asking the court to overturn the 1873 slaughterhouse cases and recognize the right to pursue an economic livelihood as a privilege or immunities under the 14th Amendment. Tell us some of the reasons why the court should revisit the slaughterhouse case. Uh, cases. Be- 
because it's wrong. Next question. <laughs> is, that, is that enough? No. Um, I, I think it's important just to take a, a step back and explain what the case is about. And then we'll talk about the different ways in which it could be decided, including um, possibly overruling the slaughterhouse cases. Um, in Missouri, it's a crime to braid hair for a living if you don't have government permission. So if you haven't spent tens of thousands of dollars on tuition uh, and over a thousand hours of cosmetology training that teaches you nothing about African style hair braiding, if you haven't done that, it's a crime to uh, braid hair for a living. Um, that's actually far more time and money than it takes to become a licensed EMT in the state. So it takes a thousand hours to become a barber or a cosmetologist or a hair braider. And it takes a hundred hours to become an EMT. You know, the person who like literally saves your life. Right. Uh, and, and we think that the only reason that this, uh, occupational licensing regime exists is, is basically to protect, you know, uh, the, the people that are already barbers and cosmetologists and, and that kind of thing. And to, to keep out competitors, um, and uh, in this case, the Eighth Circuit, uh, the circuit that we're asking uh, the Supreme Court to review, said, you know, sure, there's not a great fit between, you know, the state's interest in health and safety and the licensing requirement is imperfect, but it's not unconstitutionally imperfect. Um, and so then the question is uh, whether or not the Privileges or Immunities Clause or other parts of the Constitution, the Due Process Clause, uh, prohibit the kind of irrational regulation at play in this case. And we have argued, and the court doesn't need to decide it this way, that uh, that perhaps this is a good opportunity to overrule the slaughterhouse cases, as, as you suggested. Um, now, uh, look, uh, I think there's a consensus on the right and the left and everyone in between that the slaughterhouse cases were wrongly decided. Uh, there are a few scholarly out, uh, outliers there, but most everybody agrees that the slaughterhouse cases were wrongly decided. And I really can't improve on Justice Thomas's explanation in a number of different opinions, most recently in his McDonald versus City of Chicago opinion, uh, explaining why the slaughterhouse cases were, were wrongly decided. These were uh, – the privilege, privilege or Immunities Clause was passed. Uh, it was adopted as part of the 14th Amendment in the wake of the Civil War. Long story short, Congress passes the, the 13th Amendment, which bans slavery. You have a bunch of southern slates trying to recreate slavery in all but name, and mostly that meant – limiting economic opportunities for uh, for freedmen and mm -hmm. also for pro-union Southerners, right? The, the Southern states really wanted to stick it to the those who supported the union during the Civil War. Um, and so in the in the debate for, over the 14th Amendment, a lot of the evidence um, uh, that was presented in the congressional record and that was publicly discussed that kind of helps us understand the original public meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause shows that it was intended to protect a, a right to earn an honest living. And this is um, you know, a, a really a, an originalist argument. So the number one reason that I think uh, the slaughterhouse cases ought to be overruled is because as an originalist matter, they were wrong. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just note, we'll, we'll post it on Twitter, but we had a debate a few years ago between Randy Barnett and the chief justice um, of the Michigan Supreme Court, uh, Steve justice Markman. Justice Markman, yep. Yeah, um, they have a good debate, who, who is also an originalist. Um, but he, he, and he agrees that some parts of the slaughterhouse cases were clearly wrong, but that others weren't. Um, so it's it's a fascinating debate, and we'll we'll post it. And he also wrote a paper for us that we'll we'll tweet out as well if you're interested in um, reading more about the debates in this this issue. So you're also asking the court to revisit another longstanding precedent, Williamson County versus Lee Optical. 
Tell us about that aspect of the case. Okay, so <clears throat> again, the petition doesn't say you have to uh, overrule the optical in order for uh, for our clients to win, uh, but that it ought to be revisited if it means what the Eighth Circuit says it means, which is basically that judges have an obligation to accept any untruth offered by the government in defense of a statute, right? Uh, and even a duty to do the government's job for it and invent new justifications uh, for why a statute is permissible. Uh, and by the way, this is a problem in a lot of areas, uh, including under the takings clause, where after the Kelo decision, courts accept any government theory why a, a taking is, is for public use. So this is the, the rational basis test that's often referred to. I think the problems with Lee Optical are kind of a close cousin to the problems with the Chevron deference doctrine, right? Um, it, they, they share many of the same defects. One of the biggest concerns that critics of the Chevron doctrine have, like Philip Hamburger, for example, is that the doctrine fundamentally warps the role of the judge, right? So when you go before a judge, you expect a new, neutral arbiter of the law. And instead, under Chevron and under Lee Optical, uh, the judge is essentially pinch hitting for team government. And let me give you an example from a <laughs> 2005 Ninth Circuit case, an oral argument that I think shows how Lee Optical, the Lee Optical version of the rational basis test really just kind of totally changes what we expect judges to do. Okay, so this is a, uh, a case um, involving a challenge to a, a statute that shut out certain mail distributors uh, to Alaska in favor of others, right? Um, and so in this exchange, Ninth Circuit Judge uh, Willie Fletcher is just trying to understand from the government lawyer uh, what the court is required to believe under the most extreme version of the rational basis test. So so let me read the, this exchange. Judge Fletcher, is it conceivable, trying to understand what the word conceivable means, that space aliens are visiting this planet in invisible and undetectable craft? Uh, Mr. Yellen, the government lawyer, is it conceivable? Uh, Judge Fletcher, yes, that's my question. Mr. Yellen, yes, it's conceivable. Judge Fletcher, and that would be a basis for sustaining con congressional legislation if the person sponsoring the bill said, quote, space aliens are visiting us in invisible and undetectable craft, and that's the basis for my legislation. We can't touch it. Mr. Yellen, if Congress made a finding of that sort, Judge Fletcher, that's my question. Mr. Yellen, your honor, I think if Congress made a finding of that sort, I think, your honor, it would not be appropriate for this court to second guess that. Judge Fletcher, okay, in other words, conceivable is, quote, any piece of nonsense is enough. Right. Um, and that's exactly what uh, Lee Optical hath wrought. Right. Any piece of nonsense uh, is acceptable, is acceptable. And we're asking for uh, a more neutral uh, adjudicator, uh, an arbiter of cases that will not put a heavy thumb on the scale in favor of the government that will, you know, do what I think is the appropriate way to handle constitutional cases. You should first ask. Is there constitutional authority for a government to do what it wants to do, right? Does it have authority under – this is a federal case uh, under the Commerce Clause or some other, some other clause. Does it have authority to do what it, what it wants to do? And even if it does have authority, second, is the exercise of that authority interfering with uh, a right? And that's the question that should be asked. Instead, we get this weird world where uh, judges are required to just believe anything – uh, that the the government says and really puts a heavy thumb on the scale in favor of the government. And I think that's that's bad for um, those of us who care about small government. So shifting gears a bit, you have a regular feed on Twitter called Courting ha uh, Courting History, where you share daily constitutional history, uh, which I just I love these feeds. Uh, so tell us what's the most interesting thing you've come across in researching for this feed. Um, it's kind of like asking which of my four kids is my favorite kid. I can't tell you which one is the most interesting. I am nerdy enough to think they're all interesting, but I will tell you which I think is the nerdiest uh, piece of like trivia um, for, for law nerds. So 
uh, and this has to do with the publication of the U.S. reports, right? Um, uh, the Supreme Court has a, has an official role called a reporter. This is the person whose job it is to kind of compile the opinions and officially pu- publish them, and that's the official version of the Supreme Court opinion, right? And uh, early on in the Supreme Court's history, um, this was you know kind of an unpaid, almost labor of love type position. <laughs> um, and the the first couple reporters just did a terrible job. The um, the the first couple reporters. Uh, uh, did you know a guy named Dallas uh, was the was the first reporter and um, the the opinions were kind of riddled with errors. It took really a long time to get the opinions out. And by the time they got to the third reporter, this guy named Wheaton, um, he was really meticulous. So on the one hand, you could be sure that his official version of the opinions um, were accurate. On the other hand, it took him years and years and years to publish an official version of a Supreme Court opinion, right? This is in the early 1800s, right? So, you know, uh, forgive him not having, you know, laptops and, and, you know, the ability to do everything we would do, we would want to do now to put together an opinion. Um, So uh, he uh, had this kind of wonderful scheme where he would put together these kind of long form versions of of opinions with lots of other interesting pieces of information and he'd sell them for a ton of money, right? So Mm, he was the official Supreme Court reporter and he'd sell the Supreme Court opinions for a ton of money. Well, uh, he gets a a job as an ambassador, uh, leaves his role as Supreme Court reporter and uh, his uh, successor decides to take all of the published opinions by Wheaton uh, and shorten them and republish them, right? Not for money, but just to republish them. And uh, Wheaton then files a copyright claim, right? And this is actually the Supreme Court's first copyright case, right? <laughs> um, and it's this fight between two U.S. reporters, the one U.S. reporter versus the next U.S. reporter. And this just broke the Supreme Court justices, right? In particular, <laughs> Justice Story, the famous uh, – the, the famed Justice Story, the story Justice Story was very good friends with both these gentlemen. And he tried to – even though the case is pending before the court, he's trying to cut these deals on the sides, get them to settle <laughs> cases. Like literally the day before the court is going to announce an opinion – um, the chief justice tells Justice Story, hey, can you go ask these guys to settle so we don't have to release their op- the opinion? And by the way, you can tell them we're going to rule against Wheaton, right? Like if Wheaton doesn't want to have an opinion ruled against him, he ought to just settle this before we have to issue this copyright opinion. So Justice Story makes this midnight plea to uh, Wheaton and uh, Wheaton is so angry. He says, no, absolutely not. And the court releases its opinion the next day. Uh, ruling against Wheaton saying you can't copyright, you can't have a private copyright in, in you know, public opinions of the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> and Justice Story, who was uh, healthy enough to uh, do that midnight meeting with uh, uh, Wheaton um, when the opinion was released, uh, suddenly was sick and didn't show up for work, right? So, uh, which I think is just he was so uncomfortable with the conflict between, you know, two friends, and in particular, Wheaton was a very close friend, he didn't show up for work. Um, what makes this extra nerdy is that the Supreme Court reporter in the early years took years to f- publish the official versions of Supreme Court opinions. Today, the official Supreme Court reporter uh, is caught up to 2013, right? So mm-hmm. we are five years behind schedule. And with <laughs> yeah. and that and you know, this is with the uh, an uncharacteristically small number of Supreme Court cases. Um, this is uh, despite the fact that he does have laptops and all sorts of ways to um, to do this faster. And, and that's kind of a, a, a dilemma and a, a question. Why is the current Supreme Court reporter so behind? So that is the nerdiest trivia <laughs> that we've included on uh, hashtag courting history. That's great. I like it. Yeah, I guess it is annoying when you have to like when you're citing a case and you have to cite the slip opinion or the Westlaw version. Right. Or yeah. leave that, you know, line with a blank. 
yes, number. exactly. Like yeah. it looks silly. Yeah, and and so somebody ought to ask the official U.S. Supreme Court reporter what gives. Like, why are you guys only caught up to what? Like March 2013, I think is the <laughs> the latest uh, Supreme Court reporter. That's funny. So before joining IJ, you spent almost a decade at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has been involved in some of the biggest cases at SCOTUS, in addition to frequently topping the list of groups that file amicus briefs at the Supreme Court. So tell us about the highlights um, of working at the chamber. So I was at the chamber for the entire Obama administration. And uh, to kind of steal a line from now Texas Governor Abbott, uh, I loved my job because I'd wake up, sue Obama, uh, go to bed and then repeat, right? Um, <laughs> so we uh, challenged a, a host of anti-business regulations by the Obama administration, and we were successful in uh, in a, a whole bevy of those challenges. But uh, it really drilled in me an appreciation uh, for the the role of the courts in holding government officials accountable, right? When they step outside the lines, whether it's a constitutional line or a statutory line. And we saw again and again and again this same phenomenon from, you know, the Obama administration. I called it the catch me if you can approach to regulation, right? Which is, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the quintessential example of this is uh, a, uh, an EPA regulation called the, the, the utility act rule. Uh, and, you know, not to talk about the details, but it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And before the Supreme Court issues a ruling on whether or not the rule is unlawful, um, the head of the EPA was on a talk show right before the decision comes down. And uh, she's asked, you know, what are you going to do if the Supreme Court rules against you? And she basically says, look, it doesn't matter. We already got what we wanted out of the rule. You know, we shut down all of these coal-fired power plants, right? There are towns in America that just don't exist anymore because of that rule. Um, and she kind of had this blasé attitude that, you know, we get everything we want out of a rule before the courts can catch up, before they can tell us, no, you can't. And then there's kind of the um, you know, the, the other idea that there, the Supreme Court can only review so many opinions, right? And a lot of those rules were upheld and the Supreme Court didn't review those decisions. So it really, you know, instilled in me a sense that, uh, number one, it's really important that all three branches are doing their job. And, and the job of the judiciary is to hold the other two branches in, in line. So earlier in your career, you were a research assistant to Jeffrey Rosen, who we've had on the podcast before. He's fantastic. So tell us about working for him. And in particular, I understand you worked on an episode of Law and Order. Um, lots of episodes. So lots of episodes. Um, Jeff oh, Rosen. Man. Jeff Rosen was a really fun boss. Uh, uh, he's one of those uh, individuals who seems to know everything about everything. Uh, and you can never run out of interesting things to learn from him in a conversation. Uh, he also uh, pushes really hard on any sort of preconceived notions or biases that you have and and forces you to think through why you why you believe what you believe. And that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, one of his jobs during that period, and I think it was probably for three or four years, is he was a constitutional consultant for NBC's Law and Order. Wait, which Law and Order? Um, the Law and Order. Like the actual law and order, not like the special victims unit or which is the best one. Uh, I, so that would be your dream job, Tiffany. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I've got a question for you because I actually had never seen an episode of Law and Order before oh. working for Jeff Rosen, and then Jeff Rosen says, "Hey, I've got this cool new gig where I'm going to be consulting, doing constitutional consulting on Law and Order." So I I binge watched um, the first you know five seasons of Law and Order to figure out what this thing was, right? <laughs> um, uh, but it was a lot of fun. Jeff would get, you know, kind of uh, a whole spectrum of stuff from the producers of Law & Order. Sometimes the the question would be kind of, uh, you know, give us an interesting case on this topic that we, you know, might be able to use uh, 
um, to, to build an episode around. Or they might have an entire script and say, like, there's a moment here. We want to know what the right legal answer would be um, or what a good legal argument would be, you know, for X, Y, or Z that will move the, the plot point along. Um, so it was uh, a number of episodes uh, over the course of, um, you know, a year, year and a half. And it was it was a lot of fun. Like I said, Jeff Rosen is a just a keen mind, and, and I love what he's doing with the National Constitution Center. Um, he set out this uh, ambitious mission to uh, to prove to the world that you can disagree without being disagreeable, which I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. Um, we've previously talked about the silly hashtag Gorsuch style, where some liberal law professors like to make fun of Justice Gorsuch's writing style on Twitter. But recently, Briefcatch, a system that analyzes opinions for reading happiness, sentence length, flow, punchiness, and plain English. Um, and we know you follow this. So tell us how uh, Justice Gorsuch scored in his so, last opinion. So I'm going to tell you how he scored on Briefcatch, but there's actually another empirical study of Gorsuch's writing um, that I want to talk about as well that reaches similar results but uses a different data set. Um, but in brief catch, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch, in his uh, opinion in the inner parties review case, um, scored really well. So on reading happiness, he got a 93 out of 100. On sentence length, he got 92 out of 100. On the flow index, 100 out of 100. And this is the one that I think um, uh, is the most interesting. On punchiness, he got a 97 out of 100, right? And I think <laughs> the, the hashtag Gorsuch style criticism – was mostly focused on, oh, he takes a long time for him to, to, to get to his point. Um, and yet, you know, if you're trying to do kind of an empirical analysis, his opinions are really punchy. And you know, to the credit of some of the people who were making the hashtag Gorsuch style kind of jokes, I think it just kind of, it was one of those funny jokes that kind of got carried away. And, and I was really impressed when um, Dan Epps um, from First Mondays, you know, on, on a recent episode of First Monday said, look, I kind of, you know, made fun of this, but in reality, you know, I got to say these opinions are really good, right? Particularly the DeMaia opinion. Um, you know, he said this is this is a good opinion, right? And I, I really respect when people do that. We all say snarky things that we regret. Um, <laughs> and and I appreciated the, that he said that. But um, if you don't think that brief catch is enough of uh, proof that Gorsuch style is kind of a silly criticism – there's uh, another empirical study that looked at his uh, almost decade of service on the Tenth Circuit and all of his circuit court opinions and tried to analyze those. Um, and this was done um, by a, uh, a law student at Yale. Um, she's also a doctoral candidate in, in modern thought and literature. Um, and so her study, uh, which is going to be a New York University Law Review, looked at Gorsuch's circuit court opinions and says – um, that he does, ex- quote, exceedingly well according to the standards of the legal writing authorities as spouse. Um, so you have another, you know, uh, empirical data point that seems to suggest that this whole thing was kind of, you know, uh, a silly exercise uh, that was unfair. So I have to ask, are you related to the Supreme Court architect, the the architect of the building, Cass Gilbert? Um, I love Cass Gilbert. Uh, <laughs> I am – as far as I know, not related. Uh, oh, I I need to go on Ancestry.com and maybe like <laughs> double check that. Yeah. So um, here's an interesting piece of trivia. Um, uh, Cass Gilbert was good friends with uh, President William Howard Taft, mm-hmm. who then became Chief Justice Taft. And Taft is basically the godfather of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, right? It was his idea to start the U.S. Chamber. He kind of kicked it off in 1912, and he's kind of seen as the – you know, the, the godfather, grandfather of the U.S. chamber. So when the U.S. chamber was building its first building, 
He said, here's this Cass Gilbert guy you guys ought to use to build the U.S. Chamber building. Um, so the building that I worked in for nearly a decade, you walk inside and if you look up, it has that kind of same Greco-Roman architecture style. And if you look up in this at the ceiling, the ceiling looks really familiar because it looks just like the U.S. Supreme Court ceiling, right? Oh, so the cool. U.S. Chamber building um, was finished in 1925 um, when – and while he's working on that building – Chief Justice Taft, uh, Taft becomes Chief Justice. He starts this big project to build a, a building for the Supreme Court. And he says, hey, Cass Gilbert, you're doing a great job over there. And he hires him to build the U.S. Supreme Court building. Now, Cass Gilbert never got to see the final product. He passed away before the Supreme Court building was finished. And neither did uh, Taft. Neither did Taft, right? Yeah. Um, uh, in I think it was finished in 1935 or so. Mm -hmm. uh, but that that iconic look uh, is shared with both the U.S. Chamber building and the Supreme Court building, which are two of my, my favorite buildings. That's really cool. That's great. Um, so we have one final question for you. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Um, so I'm going to eliminate living justices um, and just talk about those who have shuffled off the mortal coil. Um, I think my answer would be Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And uh, I, I'd like to meet him and talk to him uh, really to understand what happened to him, right? Um, there's a, a great book called The Metaphysical Club by this uh, guy named Lou Menand. And he says, you know, early in Justice Holmes' life, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes volunteered to fight for the Union in the Civil War because he was a staunch abolitionist, right? He, he, was, he supported the Union, the ideas of the Union, the ideas of abolition. He was – he supported the ideas of equality in the Declaration of Independence. Um, how do you go from that person to the justice on the Supreme Court who uh, rejected, basically rejected any sort of notion of, of, of uh, kind of something being intrinsically moral, right? Um, to, to give an example from uh, Luminan's book, just to kind of show uh, the, the, what he describes as the grimness of Holmes um, and his complete re rejection of a belief in beliefs, as he says, um, look at Buck versus Bell. So this is the famous case where a Virginia law allowed the state to sterilize people mm -hmm. um, for mental incompetence. Um, Buck argued the law was unconstitutional. Holmes rejected the notion. Um, but here's something uh, that he says. Uh, he says in the opinion, Holmes says in the opinion, we have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who who – um, already uh, sapped their strength of the state for those lesser sacrifices. In other words, um, if the government can require citizens to go to war, to fight and die, if it can require you to actually die, then the government can demand anything short of that, which is one of the most aggressive examples of the uh, kind of the scope of government power um, imaginable. Um, if, you know, if, if you can you know, draft somebody to, to go to war, then you can also require them to do anything short of death. And how does he go – from, you know, the beginning of his life to the end of his life. And the answer partly is in his experience in the Civil War. And he, you know, famously kept uh, his bloody uniform where, where he'd been shot, um, uh, you know, uh, more than once in his closet. And he'd look at it every day. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he famously wrote to, to learn at hand, you know, that, um, that the world was so grim and terrible and that, quote, this is not the kind of world I would want to bring anyone else into. And, and you know, famously, Holmes never had any children. I want to understand kind of the, the journey of that man. And that's the one I would most likely want to talk to. Very interesting. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia. 
Privileges or Immunities Edition. Are you ready? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> so here's the thing. As a listener, I love when you guys do um, the Supreme Trivia because I always learn something. And that's awesome <laughs> as a listener. But as a contestant, that seems less enticing. And I was wondering, <laughs> can I get like a phone a friend option? <laughs> I don't, we've never used that before. Yeah. Wait, who you would have to. Oh, yeah. Use, who, who so I've given call? some thought to who I'd call. There who are two, two friends, depending on the question. Would you call Judge Boggs? He's a, he, <laughs> yeah. He's been a phone a friend on. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, yeah. I did not know that. See, yeah. I'm learning yeah. something. Okay. Um, who wants to be a millionaire? I was blanking on the yeah. name of the show. Yeah. Uh, we should do the whole thing about judges who have appeared on uh, game shows. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's uh, Kaczynski, Kaczynski famously was the, on a game show. The Love. What was yeah, that like game? the love connection or love the dating connection. game. Yeah, maybe the dating I, yeah, game. I think yeah, I think that was it. Um, but I, uh, I think Adam Feldman, empirical Scotus guy, uh, oh, would be, be one of good. my uh, one of my people. But for kind of substance of the court and processes of the court, Carter Phillips at Sidley, who's actually <laughs> like he he's he's an officer of the Supreme Court Historical Society, and just in every encounter with him, I have found that he has the the deepest well of knowledge about the Supreme Court of any human being I've ever met. So those would be the two friends that I would want to phone. Well, I don't think we're going to allow a phone a friend this time, but maybe in the future we'll consider adding it as an option. (laughs) Okay. So be brave and we will move ahead with trivia. (laughs) Okay. First question. How many cases were consolidated in the slaughterhouse cases? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure how many total cases were consolidated. So I'm going to go with uh, three. Yeah, you're right. There were three. Um, I won't name them because they have so many parties and they're so long. But there's a total of three. And my favorite, though, is um, is just like the main name, the Butcher's Benevolent Association mm-hmm. of New Orleans. <laughs> like were butchers known for being particularly benevolent? In <laughs> or were they not? And so this was the benevolent butchers. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Out but of yeah. So the, the phrase benevolent at that time in history had kind of a particular meaning. There are all these benevolent societies, but it basically means... Like what we would call it like a nonprofit or like a nonprofit oh, type organization, okay. right? So a benevolent society could be in furtherance of any sort of uh, objective or, or goal, <laughs> right, um, or idea. Butchering specifically needs. Oh, know, butchering benevol- is totally benevolent. benevolent. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. And delicious. <laughs> Who was the former Supreme Court justice and Confederate Secretary of War, who argued on behalf of the butchers in the slaughterhouse cases. Uh, so uh, I just did a courting history on this individual oh, like man. yesterday Dang or the day it. before. Oh, we should have checked ago. that. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of one of those interesting stories because uh, he, he actually uh, wrote a concurrence in the Dred Scott case, right? So he was, he was famously a, um, uh, a, a, a pro-slavery justice on the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, the, my courting history thread was on his resignation from the U.S. Supreme Court so that he could go uh, uh, serve with the Confederacy in the Civil War. He was the, the assistant secretary of war um, for uh, Jefferson Davis. Right. So so there's this this fascinating you know trajectory where he goes from, you know, resigning from the court to go fight for the South to being an advocate. And he, he moved to New Orleans. Uh, he was originally from from Alabama or Georgia. He was born in Georgia, moved to Alabama, um, ended up in in New Orleans, um, but to being uh, the advocate arguing to uh, uphold one of the you know strongest parts of the Fourteenth Amendment, which is supposed to correct um, the you know the the Civil War uh, or correct kind of some of the wrongs of the of the Civil War and 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 provide a mechanism to to keep the Southern states from doing you know stuff like that again. Wait, you haven't said his name yet. 
Um, and now I've lost my track. Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, His first name's John. Yes, is that helpful? Uh, John Archibald Campbell. Yeah, that is correct. Um, I got his middle name, too. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's great. I, I blanked on it for a second there. Uh, um, I think that, I mean, he clearly had a very interesting career, but the story of how he became a Supreme Court justice, I think, is really interesting. So President Fillmore made four nominations to this vacancy, and none of them made it through. They either withdrew their names, declined to serve, um, or the Democratic-controlled Senate uh, declined to act on the nomination. So then when Franklin Pierce was elected president— a group of sitting Supreme Court justices approached him and suggested Campbell as the nominee. And I just think that would be really interesting if that happened today. I mean, I think the media would go wild. Yeah, I guess it's it's sort of happened a little bit. I know there's all these stories of of Justice Scalia um, suggesting to like send me Elena <laughs> in, in the Obama administration. Yes. Yeah, send me Elena Kagan. Yeah. Well, that's that. That it's, may it's be different. Apo- that may be apocryphal. I, I think this is a plot line in an episode of the West Wing. Um, <laughs> right. Where like one of the Supreme Court justices says, oh, actually, no, no, no. It's a would be Supreme Court justice who, who kind of cuts the deal. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, that is a fascinating story. I actually did not know that piece about how he got on the court. Um, I was focused on how he left the court. Yeah. Um, because, you know, he, he wanted to go um, serve the civil serve in the, the Civil War for the, the South, which, um, you know, I criticized him pretty strongly for, you know, kind of abandoning his oaths to the Constitution and to the court. Yeah. Um, for 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 doing that. But I, I, I am intrigued by the trajectory of uh, of his career where all this, you know, later on you see him. Um, defending the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know more about what's going on in his head. Definitely. Okay, next question. Which Fourth Circuit judge has called the Privileges or Immunities Clause a dormant volcano whose eruption would be both difficult to predict and to contain? Ooh, gosh. Um, I, I'm not familiar with that exact quote, but I would have to guess Judge Wilkinson. Yes, of course. Uh, based on what he said about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Um Yes, uh, it is J. Harvey Wilkinson, and he wrote this in a 1989 Harvard Journal of Law and Policy article. Yeah, that would have been that would have been my guess. I think he's totally wrong, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> Next question: In Corfield v. Coriel, the famous case where Justice Bushrod Washington listed the privileges and immunities enjoyed by U.S. citizens, what was the underlying regulation that was challenged? Um. You know, I'm blanking on, you know, I just read Cor, uh, Corfeld the other day and I'm blanking on the underlying regulation. Um, yeah. It was from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Does that help? No. no I'm... So it was a New Jersey regulation forbidding non-residents from gathering oysters Oh, that's and right, clams. right, right. So that's, um, and in fact, uh, that's uh, when he talks about what a privilege and immunity is. And basically that was just a phrase that meant rights, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, one of the key phrases in that opinion is is um, that the that a, the, a quote, professional pursuit, um, the you know, as, again, the right to earn an honest living is an example of a privilege, uh, a privilege and immunity. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's uh, the, the collecting oysters is kind of a, a, a different subset of that because there's this whole question of like who owns the oysters in the first place? Mm-hmm. Does the state own it? Who do, who do they get to give it to? And that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Final question. Which justice wrote in a dissent? It's a little long. We should consider whether the Privileges or Immunities Clause should displace, rather than augment, portions of our equal protection and substantive due process jurisprudence. The majority's failure to consider these important questions raises the specter that the Privileges or Immunities Clause 
will become yet another convenient tool for inventing new rights. <coughs> Sorry, should I be pressing this cough button? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, that sounds like it's going to be a, a, a Justice Scalia or a Justice Rehnquist type um, opinion. I'm curious. who's What's yeah, the answer? It's um, from Justice Thomas. Just as Thomas. Uh, Sainz v. Sainz. So Roe, right? So this is his yeah the challenge to California's one-year residency requirement for citizens to access welfare benefits. Right. So he has two important opinions on the privileges uh, or immunities clause. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's his dissent in Sainz versus Roe, and then there's his concurrence in McDonald versus City of Chicago, where he really kind of builds this mm-hmm. up. And that's the one that I think you know is, is um, definitely worth the read because at that point he's kind of very carefully cataloged uh, the history of the, you know, kind of the privileges or immunities fight. And, you know, his argument is that uh, in the slaughterhouse cases, the Supreme Court essentially deleted the privileges or immunities clause. And then people started kind of rooting around in other parts of the 14th Amendment to kind of reach the same results, right? Like the due process, (laughs) particularly he talks about the due process clause. Yeah. Um, And he says that's one harm that flows from, uh, deleting the privileges or immunities clause in slaughterhouse cases is one of the reasons why it uh, ought to be restored. Now, I, I will say there's um, there's a moment in the McDonald oral argument when, you know, kind of Justice Scalia, frankly, you know, broke my heart in oral argument where he said something. I just want to read this <laughs> passage. He's asking Alan Gura, um, who represented the plaintiffs in, in this uh, challenge, uh, which asked the question whether or not the Second Amendment applies to you know, states and municipalities. And Alan Gura said, well, the Privileges or Immunities Clause is an originalist answer. is the place where you'd go to find that the right to um, bear arms applies to states. And to do that, you'd have to overrule the uh, slaughterhouse cases. And so Justice Scalia says, why are you asking us to overrule 150, 140 years of prior law when you can reach your result under substantive due? I mean, you know, unless you're bucking for a place on some law school faculty – what you argue, argue is the darling of the professoriate for sure, but it's also contrary to 140 years of our jurisprudence. Why do you want to undertake that burden instead of just arguing substantive due process, which as much as I think it's wrong, I have – even I have acquiesced in it, right? Um, Justice Scalia often uh, kind of joked that uh, bro, quote, Brother Clarence um, – he would say – I'm not going to say that Brother Clarence doesn't believe in stare decisis, but he doesn't much believe in stare decisis, right? Um, <laughs> And, you know, I think the example of the, the Missouri hair braiding petition shows the harms that can fl- flow from kind of letting bad precedent stay on the books, especially precedent that has deleted a part of the Constitution, right? You have an economic liberty that, you know, based on the, you know, the, the, the original public meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause was supposed to be protected. It was intended to be protected. Um, and what are the consequences of that? We talked about, you know, occupational licensing like the Missouri hair braiding case. Um, and one in four professions nowadays, one in four jobs in America, you have to get government permission to do that job. And most of this isn't about health or safety. Most of these are about, you know, the exact same thing that happened in the slaughterhouse cases. You have one butcher who cuts a deal with the, um, the legislature and gets, gets the legislature to give him a monopoly to be the only butcher in the area, um, and deprives everybody else of an opportunity to earn an honest living. And that's what the, one of the things that the privileges and remedies clause was supposed to protect uh, against. Um, and I think that even if it's been around 150 years, it's never too late to do the originalist thing. Yeah. Stare decisis is for suckers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to make that a bumper sticker. Oh, wait, I actually, would, I, I would, brought gifts. 
for you guys. Oh, well, thank you. Okay, you guys have a uh, awesome Supreme Court podcast. We have what I think is the best, also known as the only podcast, focusing on exclusively on the Federal Circuit Court. So I brought you some swag for our podcast, Short Circuit, which is uh, Bluetooth headphones. Oh, um, well, thank Short you. And for the person in the booth, awesome. um, I brought an extra set of uh, Bluetooth headphones. So well, we also have me. swag for you. After oh, the show. yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.